I've always had a very developmental approach to understanding adult mental disorder. I don't think you can truly understand an adult's psychological functioning at all without having a very good understanding of their early childhood and even their pre-verbal years. The question is, what happened to you as a child? That's the, the thing that is overrepresented in lifelong chronic unremitting mental disorders is some kind of trauma, usually childhood trauma. It's very unusual that you get a patient before you of any diagnosis who's not had maladaptive childhood experience. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. My name is Keith Fiveson. I'm proud to say we are an official podcast for the MAP Psychedelic Science 2023 Convention. On this podcast, I had the pleasure and honor of speaking with Dr. Ben Sessa, who will be leading a session focused on psychedelics as the great disruptors on Thursday, the 22nd of June. Ben has been a child and adolescent psychiatrist who has worked with young people and adults in the field of addictions and trauma-related psychiatry for over 20 years. For the last 15 years, Ben has been at the forefront of psychedelic research in the UK through the use of psychedelics at Bristol University and Imperial College London under the auspices of Professor David Nutt. He has taken part as a study doctor and as a healthy subject, receiving and administering MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and ketamine in multiple UK research studies. As a former co-founder of the first UK-based cannabis prescribing clinics, Ben was the clinical medical officer, the chief medical officer at Awaken Life Sciences, opening Europe's first psychedelic medical clinic, providing psychedelic therapies and therapist training courses, as well as conducting independent research. He also was very much involved as the co-founder and former president of Europe's largest psychedelic conference called Breaking Convention. In this podcast, we get to talk about all of that and more, specifically around his session and specifically around how psychedelics can really be a disruptive force in the marketplace. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Ben Sessa. Welcome to the Mindfulness Experience, Dr. Ben Sessa, who is a consultant, child, and adolescent psychiatrist who's worked in the field for quite a while, works with young people, adults in the field of addictions and trauma-related psychiatry, and you've been doing this for over 20 years. So welcome to the Mindfulness Experience, the official or one of the official podcasts for the Psychedelic Science 2023 Convention. Thank you so much for being here, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Well, thank you very much, Keith. It's a great pleasure to be here. I look forward to taking part in the conference and uh, good to speak to you today. Uh, it's uh, it's really uh, gonna be an incredible co convention. I think we've got uh, over 10,000 or close to 10,000 people that are going to be there in Denver uh, uh, from the 18th through the 24th. And uh, you've been in this field for quite a while, and I understand you've got a uh, a session there. Uh, it's Thursday, the twenty second. Can you tell our audience what you know the uh, session is about? Yes, so it's called Psychedelics: The Great Disruptors, 
Mm -hmm. um, I've been working in psychedelic research and academia and clinical work with psychedelics for almost 20 years. So I'm drawing on my experience working in the fields of research and with patients um, to have a glance at how we got to where we are, what's going on right now, and where we're we going. Um, there's been such tremendous changes in the whole psychedelic sector in the last 15, 20 years, and especially in the last three years, it's almost impossible to predict what's going to happen next. So the session really is kind of brainstorming lots of different possible scenarios and options going forward, because um, I don't think anyone can really predict what's going to happen. Um, so it should be quite an interesting and dynamic session. Mm. So tell me, uh, when we start talking about the great disruptor, what is that? Well, can we unpack that a little bit? What does that actually mean, the great disruptor? Yeah, so psychedelics themselves, I consider as very disruptive. Mm. They're disruptive in how we define them. Do we call them psychedelics? Do we call them entheogens? Do we call them intactogens? Do we call them sacraments? Do we call them dangerous, evil drugs of abuse that damage society? Do we ban them? Do we make them illegal? Do we venerate them and celebrate them? Do we put them in ceremonies? Um, just even defining them and knowing what we call them is mm. tricky. Um, they also span different psychopharmacological classes in in or in terms of their molecular structure. Are they are they phenethylamines? Are they tryptamines? Um, so the definition is 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 vague. Um, they challenge our very concept of categorical psychiatric diagnoses because they work at the root of trauma. We see that trauma is at the root of all psychiatric diagnoses, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addictions, eating disorders, personality disorders. Um, those psychiatric di diagnoses, which we've become so wedded to through DSM and other, other manuals, um, kind of dissolve in the face of psychedelics. It doesn't really matter what the, over, the overall psychiatric diagnosis is. The treatment is very similar. And that's get to the root of the trauma with psychedelic therapy. So mm. they are disruptors in terms of diagnosis. They're obvious huge disruptors in terms of treatment. They're completely the antithesis of current psychopharmacological treatment in psychiatry, which is about daily maintenance drugs to withhold symptoms that doesn't actually cure the patient. Psychedelics, you only use the drug one, two, three or four times with psychotherapy to then get better and not have to sit on daily drugs. So they're completely disrupting the biological maintenance model of psychopharmacology. They're disrupting the way we deliver healthcare. Mm. They're disrupting the concept of how we fund healthcare, how we invest in healthcare. Um, most investors that want to put money into biotech companies, they want to put money into a particular compound for a particular treatment or psychiatric mm -hmm. indication. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, I've got this drug, and it actually works on all conditions. Mm. And in fact, there's a whole bunch of other ones that are similar, but different. And they also work on all conditions. Mm -hmm. Investors don't know where to put their cash. Mm. Uh, insurance companies don't know how to fund this because they want to fund a single treatment for a single condition. So we're either in the position of conforming to the current strategies of, of uh, categories or psychedelics are going to rewrite the way we do um, medicine and science and psychiatry. I think the other way in which they're disrupting is research. We're seeing that randomized control studies, which are the gold standard tool for drug approval, um, psychedelics don't fit very well into those either. And we're seeing the emergence of real, real world data as a better tool with which to measure the safety and efficacy of drugs 
and therefore a better tool to approve new drugs. So altogether, psychedelics, they come into all these different areas of mm -hmm. science and medicine and blow it wide open. Mm. And so it's a very it's a very fragile and dynamic position that we're in right now. And who knows where the dust is going to settle. Oh, my God. You know, we've... Uh... <laughs> You've uh, you've presented a um, um, a mansion of uh, opportunities and doors of perception that we can go through here, um, you know, uh, and uh, whether or not it's the name psychedelics, which really carries a bit of a stigma to it. So I think your your point is a, a very good one in terms of what people might think of when they hear the word psychedelics versus enth entheogens or any other. You know, name that we might ascribe to it: the diagnosis, the treatment, the healthcare, the investment, the uh, insurance, the research, the issues around trauma. Uh, I mean, you know, where do we go from here? And how are you going to go ahead and approach this session that you've got? Now, how are we going to how are we going to pack all that into an hour? You know. Uh... Um, well, I'm. Uh... I, I love public talking. I mm -hmm. do a lot of public talking and I kind of like the TED talk model of doing things. I mean, if you can't say it in 15 minutes, then it's not worth saying. So mm -hmm. I've only got a 15 minute slot. I could talk for five minutes or five hours on this subject. And I think it's quite a skill and an art to mm -hmm. be able to pack it into 15 minutes. But Keith, you're absolutely right. It's a challenge. I guess I've got a transatlantic flight in which to practice. Um, I do want to get all of those points across. I suspect I will leave the audience asking more questions than having received answers. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what I want to bring to the conference. Um, you know, I am not a new researcher in the field with one particular study with data to show someone. I'm someone who's been here for a long time, having looked at all of what's going on and trying to give a kind of broad, open-minded reflection um, to kind of bring people back to earth in a way and remind them that this is not a foregone conclusion. Um, anybody who says they know what the psychedelic sector is going to look like in five years is not accurate because nobody five years ago predicted it would be where it is. Mm -hmm. And we're not even sure where it is. Um, mm -hmm. Things change so rapidly. Uh, the new developments in Australia are a, are a very good example of that, um, which we can certainly talk about here if you'd like to. Yeah, I'd really like to talk about that because uh, I heard from Rick Doblin that you'll be doing some work uh, in Australia or certainly uh, lifting up that research or, or going into that model. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Australia and what the impact might be as as we look at it? Uh, from a global yeah. model, because uh, one of the things that um, I, I, I just also want to get back to is your mention of trauma, you know, trauma being at the root of most of the diseases that individuals face. And uh, I, I think that's really very, very important here, because if we really look at trauma, we do know that for the large for, for a large part, a lot of the research and a lot of the work is really focused on trauma. And I'd really like to understand your view of how psychedelics really help in that regard as well. So Australia, trauma, uh, you know, curing the world's ills, if you will. Okay, well, we'll start with Australia then. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so for many, many years now, the whole of the world's research community has been looking towards maps to get MDMA over the line with FDA and EMA mm -hmm. um, as, a, as, a, as a licensed approved treatment for PTSD. 
Um, and every time I've seen Rick over the last 10, 15 years, it always goes up by about two years and another $20 million <laughs> needed. And the goalposts keep moving and moving and moving. Mm -hmm. And the latest is Q4 2024. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the phase three date is in and it's submitted to FDA and we're waiting on that. And it looks like it should become a medicine in the United States, at least, and possibly in Europe at the end of 24. So we've been waiting on that for, for decades. Mm -hmm. We've been waiting on Compass Pathways recently to get it over the line for psilocybin. Compass Pathways are sort of the lead agency with psilocybin, mm -hmm. looking at getting that over the line with FDA and EMA. Um, it's a few years behind MDMA. Uh, they're going into phase three now, so it's probably looking more like 26, 27, 2028 for right. psilocybin. So, you know, those have been the leading agencies um, that are the furthest ahead in terms of phase one, two, and three research to get approval. And then suddenly this year, out of the blue, the Australian government on the 1st of February announced that on the 1st of July, very soon this year, MDMA and psilocybin will become medicines. Mm -hmm. State approved medicines, not recreational use. These are for doctors to prescribe to patients. Um, completely blowing out of the water, maps and compass and all of those efforts by years, mm -hmm. um, which is just a very... Uh, unusual and incredibly courageous and brave move on the part of the Australian government. I mean, almost no research has come out of Australia in terms of psychedelic research. So mm -hmm. it's very, very much in credit to and on the back of the work of MAPS and Compass and Imperial and others that have done all this work. Um, so I'm going to Australia. So I then got asked by Mind Medicine Australia leading um, training uh, organization to go out there and lead the training for MMA to train doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and therapists um, because they now have access to use the drug in mm. a few weeks' time. Fantastic. So it's quite extraordinary. And that's another example of the disruption effect. You know, we were waiting on something to happen for all these years, and then this comes completely out of the left field right. um, with this new directive. Now, it's very important that we get that training right and we get this new new initiative right because the eyes of the world will be on australia for the next 18 months mm -hmm. because if this works and we get it right then this should push other countries to do the same mm. and that might actually leapfrog mm -hmm. what maps and compass are doing um mm -hmm. if if other other nations just decide to make this a medicine um ahead of getting in all the final phase three data mm -hmm. then you know, it, it's not that MAPS's work has been wasted by any means. They're, they're the leading organization that's provided the data that has allowed Australia to make that decision. Mm -hmm. um, but it would just be great for anything that expedites the uh, approval and licensing of these medicines. That's fantastic. So that's why I'm going to Australia. I'm kind of following my nose to where to where it is at the moment in the world. Great, great. And, and the reason for all this, as you started to uh, talk about, you know, when we uh, just went through the introduction of the great disruptor is trauma. Now, yeah. uh, how do you think uh, psychedelics uh, can be therapeutically used to treat trauma and other me mental health conditions? Is that because obviously this is the reason why Australia is as as leapfrogged and uh, I'm just trying to understand what your training and what your focus is going to be as you go there. Yeah, so as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, mm -hmm. um, although I currently work with adult addictions more than young people, um, I've always had a very developmental approach to understanding adult mental disorder. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can truly understand an adult's psychological functioning at all without 
having a very good understanding of their early childhood and even their pre-verbal years. Um, and what's become apparent through my 25 years plus working as a doctor mm -hmm. is that the overlying diagnosis is almost irrelevant. It's a red herring, whether they happen to be, the person before you happens to have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, personality mm -hmm. disorder, addictions, PTSD, alcohol addiction, heroin addiction, depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's almost irrelevant. The question is, what happened to you as a child? Mm. That's the, the, the thing that is overrepresented almost 100% mm. in lifelong chronic unremitting mental disorders is some kind of trauma, usually childhood trauma. It's very unusual that you get a patient before you of any diagnosis who's not had some kind of difficult um, or maladaptive childhood experience. Mm. Um, so what this says in terms of psychedelics as disruptors is let's not be focusing on the DSM categorized diagnosis, what we need to do is psychotherapy to address this patient's experience of trauma. And whatever the diagnosis, the treatment is roughly the same. It's about affecting a positive, trusting, containing, secure relationship between the therapist and the patient using drug assisted sessions with any drug. And the other the other point I make is that I, as far as I'm concerned, take three different drugs, MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine in the clinical session they are much more similar to each other than they are different mm. um, obviously these are three different compounds with three different pharmacological effects and subjective psychological effects that's clear mm -hmm. but when you're using them as tools as an adjunct to psychotherapy mm -hmm. they are more similar than they are different it doesn't really matter they all work for all mental disorders because mm -hmm. they are all non-specific adjuncts to psychotherapy because what they are what you have in this brief highly privileged few hours mm -hmm. and it depends on how long it is that is this window of opportunity in which you put the brain into a plastic or flexible state mm -hmm. either biologically psychologically or both mm -hmm. and then you at that point you hit them with bespoke focused psychotherapy in that plastic flexible state and this allows for lasting change to otherwise rigid stuck narratives that are impediments for them moving forward with psychotherapy so whatever the diagnosis, most people have long-term chronic unremitting treatment-resistant disorders. It's almost as if all disorders in psychiatry are treatment-resistant. None of them respond well to the treatments we have um, with, with daily maintenance medication and suboptimal psychotherapies that we use. Um, and, and this is because people develop these very early narratives about themselves and the world as a result of disordered attachment because of childhood experiences which are maladaptive mm -hmm. and this becomes very fixed and rigid and it's very difficult to tackle them now mm -hmm. psychedelics whatever the psychedelic compound any of them work um are the best most innovative technology that we've had in mm -hmm. in psychiatry for a hundred years and they offer the best chance we've ever had at tackling that rigidity and providing that flexible mm -hmm. uh plastic open mind for mm -hmm. a few precious hours and it's the skill of the psychotherapy to work before, during and after that state, especially through integration, to actually then result in lasting changes, mm -hmm. physical and psychological changes and lifestyle changes, which then can create recovery with further work and integration. So it, it all comes around to trauma and it all comes around to the plasticity mm -hmm. that's offered by this new technology mm -hmm. with psychedelics. So I often say uh, they psychedelics give you an opportunity to reboot, reset, reframe, and uh, relook at you know have the emotional literacy to revisit 
uh, traumatic moments throughout your life and then put na a narrative, a new narrative to it, and then allow you to go ahead and reintegrate that into your life as a, as a functional human being. Um, you, one of the things you talked about is the whole area of neuroplasticity. Is that incorporated into that? Does that you know, uh, uh, and and I often hear neurogenesis uh, being thrown around. You know, the the whole idea of being able to rewire the brain is that is that also a part of that? Yeah, and we can look at that in different levels. You can look at it with a very um, strict pharmacological definition mm -hmm. of neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, neuroflexibility, all which have their own different definitions mm -hmm. in a strict sense. Um, and we can look at the different compounds and look at the neurobiological studies that have been done that can demonstrate actual neuroflexibility, neurogenesis, mm -hmm. um, neuroplasticity, whether that's through dendritic growth or the shutting down or opening of certain networks. Um, I think of it more psychologically as whatever the mechanism and whatever the compound. Mm -hmm. Keith, you have this window for a few hours and it then closes again and we're starting to understand better the neurobiology of that open window and we can see ketamine for example results in protein synthesis and dendritic growth uh, psilocybin works in a slightly different way probably by shutting down the default mode network which prevents this depressive rumination um but allows for this extra connect work network connectivity um MDMA works slightly different by shutting down the limbic system and the amygdala and the fear response, which allows you to then address traumatic memories mm -hmm. um, that you would normally avoid. So those are all different biological mechanisms. But in the broader psychological sense of plasticity, mm -hmm. um, I see this as an open window of opportunity. And mm -hmm. the real the real trick and the real skill is not the drug. The drug's the easy bit. Mm -hmm. The real skill is the psychotherapy. And making that effective in this fairly brief and transient privileged window of opportunity um because that's where the patient makes the real advances got it got it so that's uh that 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 really is uh quite incredible let me ask you what inspired you to pursue um you know research into psychedelics i mean you're obviously working uh you know with uh adolescents or adults in the field that deal with addictions or misuse or behaviors uh and you know here it is that you've been in this field for quite a while i would i would consider you to be a early researcher and developer uh in this area what what inspired you to 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 sort of pursue psychedelics so as a teenager i came across psychedelics and was interested in them i was interested in psychedelic culture as a child and a young person i grew up in a very liberal household um uh, where people were not taking drugs, but they were interested in music and art and literature. And I was very familiar with the psychedelic culture as I grew up. I then went to medical school uh, in London in the 90s, um, where I came across the rave scene. I was a DJ um, working in clubs and, and raves in the early days. So I came across MDMA through that. And then when I finished med school and finished medicine and surgery and went and studied psychiatry, um, I decided to write a paper about the history of psychedelics in medicine, and it was the first paper in the British medical press on psychedelics since the 60s, and it was highlighting the past history 
in the 50s and 60s and also the current research that was sort of on its way at the, that point and I would ask my tutors, you know, what, what can you tell me about LSD psychotherapy in the 50s and 60s? Because it was really big in psychiatry back then. And they all said, what are you talking about? You're crazy. That never happened. And I was like, it did. It did. It was a big thing. So I felt like I was kind of bringing, the atten bringing it to the attention of my generation of psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. So I went to Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday party celebrations in 2008 in Basel. And then again, 2006 and 2008. And then... All the maps conferences i met rick mm -hmm. and michael and annie and started working with david nutt in 2007 who's a, a eminent professor here in the uk in psychopharmacology um and found myself a very it's a very small pool of people at the time there was no one else in the uk doing it so we started the research with robin carhart harris and david nutt in, in imperial well in bristol that then went to imperial so it very quickly escalated and then i was uh, working either as study doctor or as a healthy sub subject in studies at Imperial on, with LSD and psilocybin and then DMT and then uh, with MDMA and then ketamine. Mm -hmm. And then whilst all this was going on, I was also working in traditional psychiatry and mm -hmm. became increasingly aware of the substandard treatments that I was offering my patients mm -hmm. with daily maintenance medications that didn't get people better, but just mask their symptoms and the polypharmacy they found themselves on. And then also lack of access to good psychotherapy that was too short and not effective and just not seeing people get better. So the things that's driven me is partly, I mean, I've always had a 50-50 interest in both pharmacology and psychotherapy. And that's kind of unusual because they're usually very disparate subjects, mm -hmm. but they've always interested me equally. So psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is the perfect match of those two dif disparate subjects. Um, and then in recent years, what's really driven me is trying to make this public healthcare deliverable. Mm. Um, you know, I think we've got enough research. We've done a, we've done plenty of safety and efficacy research. The real the real challenge for the next coming years is turning this into public health free deliverable medicine for all. Um, it can't just stay for the rich hippies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, I'm. <laughs> I like that. I like that end there. The rich hippies. Uh, I uh, uh, having lived on the commune back in the '70s, and you know, uh, having had a successful career, I feel like I'm one of those rich older hippies. So, um, you know, and I, I, I think it is given the uh, cost factors. It is a privilege in a lot of cases. Certainly here in the U.S going through uh, several ketamine sessions uh, will cost you $12,000 or more. And uh, we still don't have, uh, you know, the dem democratization of of uh, psychedelics into healthcare. So I think it's going to be an interesting journey for you. And, and you know, we, we're, we're, we're counting on you certainly to go ahead and normalize this as you go to Australia and do your training there. Let me let me ask you, um, a question uh, around uh, the medical model versus the more uh, spiritual model, if you will, the communal model, which, uh, you know, to a large extent, there's, there's still a large underground. There's still a lot of people that really believe the medicine is in the community. The medicine is in connection. 
the medicine is in being seen, heard, and recognized and accepted for your story. And having, you know, done the work that you've done, certainly with addiction and the addiction field and in the trauma field, uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Now, I've covered two things, obviously, the Australia uh, gig, but also the uh, medicalized model versus the more communal model. Do you have any yeah. thoughts about that? Well, I think that a lot of this is just semantics. Um, mm -hmm. Psychedelics create this very personal internal experience, which has idiosyncratic personal meaning to the user. And the skill is to turn that into something that becomes a meaningful lifestyle change for then the person to improve their interpersonal relationships and their community cohesiveness with others. Now, whether they call that Kundalini chakras, energy levels, or dopamine, serotonin, default mode network, hmm. or crystal healing, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, Shiva, whatever mm -hmm. floats your boat to give you and your life personal meaning. I'm very much against the concept of dogma. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we need to meet patients where they are. If they want to describe it in a psycho-spiritual framework and that works for them, then that's great. But a lot of people don't. Um, a lot of people want the scientific framework. Mm -hmm. So the important thing is that the clinician doesn't impose their views upon the patient because that just results in reduced accessibility for all. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot we can learn from non-Western indigenous uses. There's a lot we can learn from um, many, many decades of good underground uses. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot we can learn from science. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to, to it's not a competition. It's not, should I go to Peru and do ayahuasca with a shaman or should I go to a lab in London and do it with a medical team? It's it's not one or the other. It's like, well, where can I go? What's my what are my options? Um, you know, we have 600,000 cases of untreated PTSD in the UK. They can't all go to Peru, you know, so I'm very much into turning this into public health care. Mm -hmm. And I think we can learn a lot from the psychospiritual dimension and bring that into science if that's what people want um, and that's doable. But what I don't want to do is um, rubbish the concept of medicalization or even corporatization um, because that's the reality of making healthcare happen. You know, in order for healthcare to happen to the millions of people that can benefit, we need money corporations, banks, investors. That's how healthcare works. It's very expensive. And I think there's been a bit of a kickback in recent years from some aspects of the psychedelic community mm -hmm. saying, get your hands off our sacred molecules, you know? Right. Well, for a start, they're not your sacred molecules. And secondly, I want to get more hands on these sacred molecules. Mm -hmm. And that requires medicalization right. because otherwise they will just remain sacredly illegal and unused. And right. that's not good enough for my worthy, deserved patients who cannot go to Peru and want to go to their doctor and have this prescribed in the National Health Service. So we need to find the language that works for, to get most patients through the door and healed through these wonderful medicines. Right. And, and, and along that line, I think there's a rigor and there's some boundaries and there's some 
uh, contraindications that may not be taken into account if we start to take a look uh, or start to rely on the underground uh, that really are there in the medicalized model, which is also helping to fund the research and the development and the acceptability and the, you know, the 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 uh, manage the contraindications, if you will, and really dive a little bit deeper through the research and through the, um, you know, through the knowledge that's been accumulated. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's where there's often some inconsistencies in, in arguments against medicalization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some arguments against medicalization are, you know, that this is going to make it exclusive. Um, on the contrary, it's a current situation that's highly exclusive. If you happen to be a rich hippie and have the money to fly off to Peru, great. But most people don't. Um, the other contraindication is around safeguarding issues. <coughs> and people have highlighted certain um, absolutely abhorrent safeguarding issues in some of the above ground research, which is right to highlight. But actually, the risk of safeguarding issues is far, far greater in the underground than it is in the overground. The overground is by definition scrutinized and supervised and open and there's testimonials and uh, mm -hmm. regulatory bodies that scrutinize every aspect. Now that doesn't mean safeguarding issues are not going to happen because they happen everywhere in all institutions, but they're actually a lot less likely to happen in a formal regulated setting than an, unform uh, an unregulated setting. So. I think that we have to learn from the unregulated settings, the, mm -hmm. pick the good bits of it. Um, but I think we're going to do the most good for the most people through mm -hmm. underground access, uh, overground accessibility. Right. I was, uh, I had Alison Hoots on, uh, uh, the podcast recently, and she's uh, created this thing called the sacred Alliance, which is to really form a lot of the rigor and a lot of the regulations or a lot of the you know, safeguards, if you will, uh, that a lot of the churches, the 508C1As, you know, really are starting to uh, pop up everywhere uh, using sacraments and, you know, using rituals and, and, and celebrations, if you will, to go ahead and help individuals go down and reboot, reset, reframe. But uh, I think to your point, all of those rigors and a lot of, not all of them, but many of those rigors are coming out of the overground and are really now looking to be incorporated more into the underground. Yeah, it's it's really important because I was speaking to a group the other day, I think it was in Oxford, I was teaching some students. And, you know, one of the narratives from the psychedelic community is, oh, my psychedelic experience was better than yours because you had yours in a lab in London and I had mine in a jungle in Peru. Mm. But actually, what they did is they flew out to Peru for four days. There was no prep, no getting to know their, their shaman, no, no preparation. Then they had their massive amount of ayahuasca and then three days later flew home. No integration, no follow-up, no support. And in fact, the person who had it in the lab... Um, they, they met with their therapist for six weeks before the medicine, they had the medicine, and they met for 12 weeks after the medicine. That is far more safe and um, opportunity for processing and integration than the person who went off to the jungle. So we need to be really clear about what our values are here. There's no, you know, we, we have to start from the viewpoint that this can be done in a clinical setting in mm -hmm. the West. and. From my example there, it can be done better 
from a clinical setting in a West. Now, if you were going to go and live in the jungle for years and have your ayahuasca and then live live there for years afterwards, true, that's arguably a better psychedelic experience. But if you're flying in and flying out, I think you'd get a better experience in terms of clinical support from the lab-based Western version. So I know those are very black and white examples, but just to try and remind us that just because it's delivered by a shaman in Peru doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be great as an overall clinical experience. Right. Yeah. And my understanding is that, you know, these neo shamans are popping up everywhere. You can, you know, walk down the streets in Peru and you can go ahead and buy a bottle of ayahuasca. You know, you don't yeah. necessarily uh, need to, you don't know what the lineage is. You don't know what the background is, but to your point, I think the question about, you know, uh, the reason why someone is dropping into the experience uh, for in many cases is to really find some actualization, to find some sense of uh, agency within themselves. Yeah. And that's where the preparation, the proper dosing and the uh, integration or the activation really bringing the visualization or whatever the recognition was, the you know, the enlightenment moment that someone might have about their own history, their own past, or their own story. That's really where it comes because many people are going back, uh, you know, to, and this is where the addiction comes in. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And it is about this, this realization and finding personal meaning. And of course, the other thing about psychedelics is we need to manage expectations of effect because there's a lot of romantic ideas that are not accurate and that gives patients a false sense of expectation. So some people can have an awful, terrible life. They go and they take ayahuasca or whatever once with minimal support and they have an incredible spiritual life-changing experience and they mm. come back home and everything's great thereafter. And those are the kind of messages that hit the, high, the headlines. Mm. The truth is it's not like that for most people. Um, we, and it's important we don't give patients that expectation because then they have their, their psychedelic experience with whatever compound and they say, well, it was great, but, you know, it's not life changing. It didn't work. Mm. Well, we need to give the message that this is hard work and, it, and the psychedelic experience itself is just the platform, the springboard. The hard work comes from the therapy and the integration and that can take weeks, months, years. So we mustn't give this message of sensationalization but rather a more conservative message of these are useful clinical tools used alongside other support services. They can bring about lasting change, but don't expect a magic wand because otherwise we set patients up to fail. Mm. Uh, and that's and that's not the right thing to do. And it can actually make people worse when they don't have the experience they'd hoped for. Or they don't have the tools or the support network. Uh, you know, many people can go through a psilocybin experience or an ayahuasca experience and just have incredible fear and, you know, come out of it thinking, oh my God, what happened? You know, and not yeah. really, and not really have someone to go ahead and really understand from a narrative viewpoint, what was that about and how does it really apply or how can you change that? negative into a positive so that you can go ahead and live a more realized life absolutely it, it's about and that that's a very personal experience for different people mm -hmm. um and that and they have to have a bespoke program of aftercare that mm -hmm. fits for them in their particular instance and that's often the bit that's missing in underground therapy i get a lot of people that come to me and say ben can you give me mushrooms or mdma and mm -hmm. i'm like no i can't do that they're not licensed medicines and then 
Then they go away and they come back and they say, okay, I've found this guy out in the countryside. He's prepared to give me mushrooms in his yurt. Um, can you give me any um, any advice about what to ask him in preparation? And I always say, ask him, this so-called shaman, guru, healer, teacher, will they see you for three weeks before the mushrooms and three weeks after the mushrooms? Mm. And they always come back and go, no, he doesn't do that, mate. He just gives the mushrooms. So as I said, the standard and quality of mm underground therapy is not as good as many people make out it's actually substandard compared to what we can offer in clinical settings in the west so now i don't mean for a second to rubbish all underground therapy there are some excellent examples of it and i know some excellent underground therapists but they lack they lack that safeguarding structure and scrutiny that is necessary in all overground work mm -hmm. and we can learn from one another, those two fields. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, preparation, dosing, integration, and activation, or set setting, and uh, integration or activation along those lines. And your view, and certainly we've seen that in a number of cases, is that it's really not there in the underground. Yeah. Well, it, 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 like I said, I'm not saying it's never there in the underground. It's, it's just it's quite occasionally, hidden. Yeah. Um, and there can be some excellent examples, but there can also be some poor examples, mm -hmm. Good. as okay. as there can be in the overground. Right, right. And uh, I think that's uh, I think that's an important point uh, to to note. Now we're going. Um, you produced some very large conferences in the past. I know that you've had the Breaking Convention. That was Europe's largest psychedelic conference, uh, and uh, you're going to be uh, certainly uh, doing your session, uh, Psychedelics as the Great Disruptor, on the 22nd of June. And, uh, you know, if anyone is going to the convention or thinking about it, this is going to be a, a great session to go to. What do you believe uh, people can expect from this convention overall, uh, given your experience in doing these things in the past? I know that there's supposed to be about 10,000 people there and, you know, different kinds of, uh, you know, speakers and obviously different threads. What's your view of what people might be able to expect from the convention? Um, well, I think it's so big that it's, it's going to be very multidisciplinary. You're going to have the scientists and the neuroscientists and the therapists and the clinical data mm -hmm. and all of that side of it. You're also going to have the indigenous uses and the non-Western uses, and you're going to have the art and the music and all the color, mm. and you're going to have a whole load of psychonauts and ravers and hippies. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be so big. It's going to be hard, I think, for people to know what to attend to. Um, as you said, I co-founded Europe's largest psychedelic conference called Breaking Convention, and we've we've met every two years since 2011. Mm -hmm. And that's great because it feels very homemade. It's more like a festival than a conference. Mm. Um, but but it's also very multidisciplinary with you know with the scientists as well as the hippies. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's going to be an interesting experience in Denver because it is so big. I hope it has a friendly homely feel to it mm. and not mm. an overly corporate feel to it mm. Mm -hmm. although i suspect the latter is highly likely just mm -hmm. given the size i mean for me i'm just looking forward to meeting up with so many people all the conversations i've been having in the last few months with all my friends in the community mm -hmm. they all end with great see you in denver so i've already got about 50 um uh 
expectations of meeting people by the time I sat down in Denver. So I think it's going to be a lot of networking. That's always the most fun bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so, there's so many talks that are going on. It's impossible to see everyone you want to see. So mm-hmm. the best thing to do is hang around with your buddies and meet lots of new people and have fun. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, I'm uh, really excited uh, to uh, uh, see you uh, and to have the opportunity to uh, meet with you uh, and, uh, you know, really hear from you. And uh, I really believe that people going to this convention are going to uh, have their minds opened in a number of ways, not only through the information, but also through the interconnection and really understanding that we are all interconnected and we're all looking to go ahead and uh, get healthy. And yeah. uh, I think this is uh, the new standard or hopefully will be the new standard in healthcare. Um uh, anything uh, uh, that uh, you can tell our listeners if they're interested in uh, getting involved in research or getting involved in in this field uh, going forward uh, would be a therapist or maybe going through their psychedelic assisted therapy uh, program or 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 you know such like myself. Yeah. Well, it depends really on what your discipline is. Obviously, if you're a doctor, nurse, social worker, um, therapist, counselor, clinical psychologist, then you can work, you can train to become a psychedelic therapist and work in the field that way. But what's so nice about psychedelics is they span so many different disciplines. Um, You know, psychedelic, psychedelic community in the industry going forward doesn't just need therapists and doctors, it needs you know, architects and lawyers and um, solicitors and mm. artists and designers and web page designers and data analysts and um, botanists and ethnobotanists and chemists. And, you know, there's it, it spans all parts of industry. So there's right. a place for you, whoever you are um, within this field, get involved. Um, find out who your local psychedelic society is. If there isn't one in your locality, then set one up. Organize monthly talks, invite speakers, get on the map. Um, and if there's research going on out of u- local university departments, get in, get involved. Go along and offer yourself as a research assistant. You know, there's many, many ways in. The other thing is, it feels as if it's been going a long time, but it's still so pioneering. So even if you're a young person coming in now, you might look at the old guard and think, oh, I've missed the bus. You Mm -hmm. haven't. Even if you start right away, you are still a pioneer in the field because it has so much further to go than it's gone so far. So get involved and don't be put off. Beautiful, beautiful. Dr. Ben Sessa, uh, thank you so much for being on the Mindfulness Experience podcast, the um, one of the official media partners and podcasts for the Psychedelic Science Convention 2023. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about your work, how would they go about doing that? Um, check out my website, drsessa.com. Um, that's got all of my books and all my papers on. Um, and come along to one of my talks. I'm speaking in Bristol in a couple of weeks and then obviously Denver. Um, I'm going to be in and out of Australia, but I'm always around. Um, I've got a Twitter page as well, so you can find me there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. Uh, Deeply appreciate it. And we'll look forward to uh, seeing you in uh, Denver. Great. Thanks, Keith.
Thank you for listening to the Mindfulness Experience Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We have other exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. For more mindfulness tips and tricks, visit our website at workmindfulness.com. Thanks again for being a part of the Mindfulness Experience. This is Keith Fiveson.